Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode of See Here is dedicated to the video aces. You've tried the best, now try the rest. Episode 104 of the See Here podcast. We're proudly part of the Pantheon Network of Music Discussion Podcasts. Joining me as they do in Brantford, Ontario, Mr. Tim Merrill. Hey, hey. And in Cape Cod, Ms. Kerry Fristo. Hello. I'm here in Melbourne. And we're here to discuss the 1988 film Tapeheads. Tapeheads is available on YouTube if you've not watched it yet. I can't find a trailer for this, at least not one that's been put out by the film company. So I'll find some clever bit of audio to put here at this bit. And then we'll be back in a moment to actually go through our thoughts on the MTV era, Tapeheads, this film in general, Mike Nesmith, anything that we can think of. We'll be back in a moment. Hi, I'm Ivan Alexey in Video Aces. We make rock videos. You could have five time to look at this or call me. Your name was Skip Ivan. Give us a call. Weird Al! Weird Al! I knew it, Mr. Yankman. My name is Ivan Alexeev. I work for Video Aces. We make rock videos. I love your work. Good to see you. Let me give you my card. My brother. Let's do it. Cube squared baby doll. Baby doll, my baby doll, doll, baby doll, my baby doll. 
the hitman. That's them. No, oh, they're completely harmless. We just did their last video. Fire. Eric Senich, host of Booked on Rock. Join me for deep dive discussions of the greatest stories in rock history from the authors who've written all about them. Ed Van Halen, one of the world's greatest guitarists. He ended on a great note, just like one of his solos. And those who were there when they happened. I'm fishing and I'm here in Sweet Home, Alabama, six miles away I'm fishing. Find Booked on Rock wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts or just go to bookedonrock.com. And we're back. Morris here, Kerry there, Tim also over there. And we're discussing the 1988 film Tapeheads, directed by Bill Fishman. The screenplay was written by Bill Fishman and Peter McCarthy, who had been producer for Repo Man, Sid and Nancy and Roadside Profits, amongst other things. The producer, who you may know from one or two things, is one Mike Nesmith, and we'll be having words to say about him, I'm sure. The film stars John Cusack, Tim Robbins, Mary Crosby, who was a daughter of some crooner, I believe. And the film has a ton of cameos. Tim Robbins made a film a few years later for Robert Altman that had its share of cameos, but this film has a ton of cameos. The IMDb description is, A couple of creative losers accidentally become big shots in the video music industry. All right, so before we get to discussing the film itself, Tim and Kerry, I want to get your perspective on the early days of MTV. Turn it on. Leave it on. I want my MTV. You want your MTV. I want my MTV. I want my MTV. 
because at this side of the planet, we didn't have a 24-hour music video channel and the culture that's being satirized in tape heads. We had our own music video shows, like I'm sure everyone did. You know, Countdown was the big thing and we had Night Moves and a whole bunch of other music video and miming type performance shows and there was Top of the Pops in the UK. But I wanted to know from you guys, I, w I want to get a feel for MTV culture in the early 80s, or I know that in Canada there was much music. So was there much difference between the two? What do you remember about the early days of MTV while it was still a music TV channel? Well, at that time, when MTV was coming out and everything, I was actually in band, a couple of them, and we were real snobby about it. <laughs> <laughs> so if MTV bands were like, cheese you know we just didn't oh mtv ugh. but by the same token i was dating this guy he was in another band he was a drummer in this other band and um he took me out to uh, this club and i can't remember what club it was it was a really small club in boston and we saw this band called o positive and o positive ended up having two tunes that made it to mtv and he was friends with them and they were local and they got signed it didn't really work out i guess but I remember thinking that that was so cool that, <laughs> that somebody was made MTV, even though, oh my God, because it tended to be more alternative and new wave kind of stuff, which rock and roll people were like, oh my God, please. You know, it, it was so funny. So I went through different phases and I really like some of that 80s music now. And at the time I did too, but I don't know, it was just a weird kind of thing, but we were kind of snotty about it, I remember. And some of the videos were pretty cheesy. You know, The the Office, the British one? Mm -hmm. And uh, David Brent does a video. Do you, I don't know if you've ever seen it. It's really funny. If you don't know me by now, you know that too. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Come on in. I've poured you a glass of my favourite wine, Cabernet Sauvignon. I really know you, but I've been lying awake at night wondering if you really know me. Because... And he's dressed all in white, and there's like, it's so like stereotype. There are these open windows with these long, white, flowing curtains, and the wind is blowing all the time. And he's always posing in these like, quote unquote, <laughs> sexy poses. It's so funny. And then he does the thing where, because that song builds up to a sort of a semi-crescendo, and he sort of does this, you know, oh, kind of, you know, really <laughs> angst-ridden singing. And oh my gosh, it is just so funny. And he paid for it himself with like, money he got from doing the show or something so like all his money is gone <laughs> but that's kind of how i thought about the videos okay so tim did mtv make its way into canada or was much music what you had instead well this is a funny thing okay and i'm laying my cards on the table yeah we're all as old as dirt all right <laughs> <laughs> you said that like it's a bad thing. There were things that came before MTV. I mean, like, for example, Don Kirshner's Raw Concert. There was Midnight Special. Mm. There were a lot of movie films, like mini movies. Like, for example, I remember seeing Alice Cooper Elected when they did a short little mini movie that was even before video. Or even Alice Cooper Welcome to My Nightmare, which was even before music videos. I mean, like, there was a lot. So, I mean, when it came in, it wasn't revelatory. It wasn't like, wow. We used to get bootlegs of... Uh, there was a, an American TV show called Night Flight. 
where Nick Flight wasn't even really associated with MTV, but they would show a lot of the eclectic stuff. And then we had a show out of Toronto called The All Night Show, which was kind of like a security guard at a TV station who's there all night, supposed to be minding the place, but he's actually mucking around with the boards and, and putting up what he wants to watch on television all night. You know, so it was an actor playing a security guard, you know, and so he'd be playing rock videos and this, and this was before much music and all of this. It, like, again, it wasn't profound when it first came out, but I kind of agree with Carrie and, and all the, the really just ridiculous, pompous videos that came out of the 80s where, you know, all these young bands that, balloon parachute pants and fluffy jackets <laughs> and all this shit you know and they were they were coming out thinking that they were going to be the jewel on the crown when actually they were just another chunk of corn on a pile of shit you know i mean it was just like so many now where are they now like some guy somewhere in the middle of kansas owns a used car lot but meanwhile he was a rock and roll guy who had one video on mtv in 81 you know where are they now but one of my favorite videos that sums up all of it is a video that the replacements did for Bastards of the Young, and I don't know if you've ever um, seen this. Yeah, I have. I know this one. Yep, yep, yep. And I love that video where it's just guy putting on the record and sitting there on the side of the bed, and you see his legs, and then he just kicks the turntable at the end. That pretty much sums it up for me. But <laughs> again, it was almost like, and this is the thing now, is how we see the internet today being so pervasive in all of our daily lives, you know, with TikTok and Facebook and all of these things that's kind of the way it was too in the 80s with a lot of these music videos where you'd see madonna on heavy rotation you would see the same video three or four times a day if you're at home mm-hmm. in the summertime or you know you'd see Cindy loppers girls just want to have fun on heavy rotation you know or yeah. or um, poison and all the hair metal as they're pronounced in france poisson <laughs> Uh, all of that, the Hairspray Brigade, all of it. But then again, there were those videos that came out that were just too much for the general public. Like, I mean, do you remember, Carrie, when uh, Duran Duran put out Girls on Film? Yeah. I and certainly do. Originally came, like, oh, but the, the full video of that. Yeah, yeah, never, they, they showed that like at 11 o'clock at night. Right, was never put on television. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, or else the Cramps did a video for uh, Creature from the Black Leather Lagoon that <laughs> was not getting on television unless it was uh, specialty shows late at night it was just a weird different time and i mean it was so funny too because i always thought what to find art was in the clubs not on the tube that you know on the tube was just kind of like we all knew it was just basically like a calling card but then again there were some one-hit wonders that kind of put out some amazing incredible videos as well it seems like you know mtv wanted to sell their brand at least from what i could see from this side of the world they wanted to sell their brand as that was the birth of the music video which we've all gone and acknowledged as a load of uh, bullshit if you could isolate these moments out of the overall films, then really 1930s, 1940s MGM musicals was probably the birth of the video clip as you took a song with a whole lot of movement and dancing and choreography that made not necessarily any sense within the context of a narrative that's telling its own story. That's the birth of the music video. And if oh, you look yeah. into popular era, look at the performance of the Beatles doing Can't Buy Me Love running across a big football field in a hard day's night. Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane a few years later when they decided, hey, we don't want to 
tour anymore. We're just going to make these little short films. I'll put them on television. It'll keep people buying our records. And, you know, through the 1970s, there are all these art pieces and you know, MTV comes along and makes out like they're the inventors of a new art form. But even before that, I mean, like we covered the film, Hell's a Poppin'. Mm, that's I right. Mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. You look at that. I mean, like that's almost really like a full-blown production, like a music video of, of what they're doing. And it's insane for that time. Every generation wants to plant the flag and say nobody's done it before because no nobody has a recollection of history beyond two weeks ago. You know? <laughs> Yeah, like that. Yeah. That's that's just the way it is, you know. There are actually feature-length films from the 20s and 30s that had musical numbers in them. One thing, but there were actually a bunch of shorts because when you think about going to the movies way back when, it wasn't just you went and saw a movie. You went and right. saw a newsreel and Cartoons. a cartoon yeah, and yeah. a serial that could be cowboys, it could be Buck Rogers in space, it could be whatever, and then they would sometimes show little musical it was almost like a jukebox series and there are a whole bunch of black ones too where they were you know doing uh, mostly what they would call black music or jazz and then they would also do the big band kind of tunes and they would basically were just you were just watching the band perform sometimes they would do a little dancing with it but that those things exist too but that's they've been around forever and they were two or three minutes long and they had costumes and stuff they were just like a modern video. I was also thinking when we were talking about MTV, because before MTV was out there, I know in Boston, there was V66. Surround yourself in audio ecstasy. V66 broadcasts in full TV stereo. Someday, every TV station will be in stereo. Today, you can experience it yourself with your own stereo TV. Experience the difference. Boston Rock Video, V66, in stereo. It was a big thing. I mean, it didn't just play Boston bands, but it did play a lot of Boston bands. Like The Fools, Till Tuesday. I'm trying to think of other ones. Probably like Robin Hitchcock. Uh, was it? Big Dipper came out of Boston, right? I'm not familiar with them. but Okay, okay. They could have, you know. <laughs> but there are a lot of Boston bands. And um, so, I mean, they probably showed... Also, people like the Cars and and Aerosmith and right. Boston and things like that. It was local because Boston's a really good music town, and because we had WBCN was the, uh, the the really good station. They were the first ones in the country to play U two. V sixty six played. I mean, they played the same stuff that MTV later did. But right. they were around first, I believe. They weren't national though, right? No, they were not. It was just it was local, and then it. I think then MTV took over the earth or something, you know, at that point. But there's two things now I, I just wanted to mention. Number one, do you guys think that this film that we're going to cover today, if it came out today, do you think they call it meme heads? I don't think you'd have your uh, specialized guys that would come out and say, hi, we're content creators. And that's the second thing. I'm a guy who bastardizes and abuses the English language just as badly as anybody else does. But one thing that bothers me is the way that people misuse phrases just the english language in general for example the term content creator carrie you had to take your dog out a little earlier you know why because your dog is a content creator <laughs> you know i 
mean, we're, we're sitting here talking about films coming out from the 1920s. We're talking about films from the 40s, short musical films from the 70s. And again, like I said earlier, you know, most people think they've planned the flag and they're the first ones to do anything because they, they don't have an understanding of history beyond two weeks ago. And this term content creator, it just means nothing. You know, shit, Adam and Eve were content creators after they bit that apple, man. I mean, <laughs> you know, how far do you want to go back? You know what I'm saying? It's nothing new. The funniest yeah. thing is my wife says to me, she says, well, if you're not going to call them content creators, what do you want to call them? I said, artists. <laughs> it just gives legitimacy to something that is just not legitimate. The, what I do for a living <laughs> As I write, there are people that go, oh, you're a content creator. And I'd be like, well, I call myself a writer. I, I really That's right. That's right. <laughs> you're so full of shit. Yeah, well, there are a lot of people out there who are full of shit making money. And I'm not going to be the exception. This is our ticket. And you are going to start making music videos. Let's get to the content creator. I mean, the video makers. <laughs> In this film, let's go around the virtual table. Is that another expression maybe you're unhappy with, Tim? I don't know. I'm going to use it anyway. The the virtual table and talk about initial thoughts about the film itself. And for the listeners out there who haven't seen the film, because the film centers around two guys who get their video put on the fictional equivalent of MTV in this film is why I wanted to get this conversation started around MTV and its importance or otherwise in the early 80s. But let's start sort of thinking about the film itself. Tim, you picked this. So when did you originally see it? And what were your thoughts about the film when you actually first did see it? I saw this when it first dropped, um, a little after when it came to video. I never saw this in the theater. And I thought at this time, at the time it came out, there were a lot of different films that I would connect this to in having the kind of same MO. For example, you look at films like Rock and Roll High School or uh, Get Crazy or Repo Man, and the films that are kind of like, they kind of capture a moment where you're on the cusp of some type of zeitgeist, you know, that there's something going on, call it kind of a a, tor- a media tornado or some kind of cultural cyclone, so to speak, and that they want to get on the edge of it, they want to get involved. And suddenly, you know, these people that are on the periphery wind up getting sucked into the center of it. And a lot of times, you know, it usually ends up trying to kind of save the rec center or make money or, or win the battle of the bands or some kind of thing. Even uh, Cheech and Chong's first movie, man, Up in Smoke, where they've just got a wide cast of every single. I know that guy. Oh, it's a dude. Hey, it's her. All throughout the movie. And then it winds up in a theater with somebody playing music or, or, or some live concert taking place. The Ramones, Rock and Roll High School, perfect example. But I just think that this film, like I said, it, it kind of captures a moment of something that just came and went with like a fart in a wind. But these two kind of knuckleheads trying to get in um, what they think is, you know, a sure thing. But again, it's also, you know, them feeling left out on the on the edges with, for example, the things they love and the things that they hold important, like the swanky modes and bringing them up to the spotlight again. Now, here's something also as well. There's vibes I get off this film that almost remind me of a Robert Altman film where Robert Altman would have such a wide cast, such an ensemble cast. And a lot of his films like Nashville or Shortcuts, how it just seems like it's just a culmination of a lot of things that have nothing to do with anything. But everything all winds up connecting into each other. He he winds up threading all this together 
and it does make sense. But when you're first watching it, it just seems like, what the hell am I? You know, like, okay, here's this guy, here's this guy, here's this guy. And it has that kind of wackiness of an Altman film like O.C. and Stiggs, which is a rare film that he did that a lot of people haven't seen. But it's just kind of got that goofiness to it. I mentioned at the start of this that four years later, after making Tapeheads, Tim Robbins was in The, the Player, Player by Robert Altman. John Cusack was too. Oh, really? I've, I've been that many years. I, I remember, so he would have been one of the cameos in that because, yeah, I remember it was Tim Robbins and I think, Greta Scacci. It's been so many years since I've seen it, but yeah, that was a film for cameos, and that was the first thing I thought. This also seems more like a far looser seat of your pants Christopher Guest film, kind of, in a way. <laughs> you know, when he would go on the best of show and like uh, The Mighty Wind and all the, the later stuff that he did. I mean, his stuff was far more on the nose and bang on. It was sharp. Yeah, it was really sharp, but this, to me, also it just seemed like a looser Christopher Guest film. Now, Kerry, before we start Started recording, you indicated that this was not necessarily your favorite film. So I, I take it that this was your first time watching it. What were some of the things that came to mind? It was. Somehow I missed this when it came out. It just never appeared on my radar, I guess. And it's interesting because, well, Tim Robbins, I don't think was on my radar quite yet. Now, I had already seen some John Cusack stuff because I think he had already done the like Better Off Dead and the One Crazy Summer films, those uh, Savage Steve movies, which I love. So I already knew him, but I don't think I knew Tim Robbins yet. I just don't think I had known him. But I had not seen this until I watched it for the podcast. Of course, I knew the music and I knew the cameos. Like, I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> it's like Weird Al and Bobcat Goldthwait and all these guys. Weird Al! Weird Al! I knew it, Mr. Yankman. My name is Ivan Alkteev. I work for Video Aces. We make rock videos. I love your work. Good to see you. Let me give you my card. So that was kind of cool, but when you say a loose interpretation of a type of Christopher Guest type thing, I get what you're saying, but it's really loose. For me, the jokes didn't land, but, you know, there were some amusing parts. And I really liked the swanky mode. <laughs> I yeah. thought they were cool. They were probably my favorite part, and I love the matching suits. And this, sub, this sort of story within a story of the guy running for office... Yeah, uh, Mart, that guy Norman yeah. Norm Mart. I, <laughs> I gotta say, was that is that Clue Gulliger? Yeah, yeah, that's Clue Gulliger. Yep. The first video they show of him when he's running for office and he's handing cigarettes out to children. Roses are red, violets are blue. The Russians have satellite laser weapons. Why can't we too? Okay, kids, hit it. I said, I'm going to like this movie because that was yeah. awesome. But <laughs> I got to say, I didn't really, the rest of it was sort of goofy. Sue Tyrell was spanking his ass. That was hilarious. That was, she, I like, she's always good. I mean, there were people, there were, there were individual things. It was wound together as a plot, but it was really, it was sort of shooting for a kind of Kentucky Fried movie zaniness. The popcorn you're eating has been pissed in. Film at 11. In a way, because there were all these little parts that then mixed together. Forget about the uh, martial arts part of Kentucky Fried Movie, because that was just terrible. But uh, What? You and I, I can't be that. friends anymore. No way. Just full of yen. You can't say anything bad about that. It was just so long, and it didn't go anywhere. I loved all, right. all, there were all these, you know, the popcorn you were eating has been pissed in. <laughs> <laughs> I 
because I saw that at the drive-in. Drive the best part to Perfect. me is the, the alarm guy where he's just standing in the corner going, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say quickly about this film, Tape Heads. One, this would really surprise you, Carrie, but I just listened to an interview recently with Savage Steve Holland who did One Crazy Summer and Better Off Dead. Right. And they had difficulty with, apparently, with Cusack because he kind of considered himself a bit of an artiste. He thought he had a career on the rise and he didn't want to see himself taken so uh, non-seriously and put in such comedic roles. And this was before this. I know. So that's this, why I'm, I'm, I'm kind of like... Way more, he's way more dignified in, in One Crazy Summer and, right, and, and right. Better Off Dead. Right. The other thing is, too, is believe it or don't, Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles is a real place. Roscoe's the name and they call me the king. Grandmaster of the chicken and the waffle thing. of it. I mean, I really liked that tune and I liked that guy, King Cotton. Oh, yeah. So does that count as product placement then? <laughs> I guess. If, oh, if yes. that's for real. Yeah. That's a bit cheeky. Yeah. So this was my first time watching the film. I mean, I'd heard of it. I think I might have even seen the videotape right. at the local library or something like that years ago, but never occurred to me to actually watch this. <laughs> um, and I'm possibly somewhere in the middle where... Yeah, I mean, like you, Carrie, I didn't think a lot of the gags landed. And I'm just sort of wondering, it came out, I think, with the best of intentions. But I'm sometimes wondering while watching this whether it wants to be a satire of the MTV culture, the MTV era or whether it's celebrating it. You've got these two characters who want to make it. It's the American dream. It's capitalism. If we want to do something and we don't necessarily have the skills, but we want to, we're going to go out and do it. Yay. So is that making fun of it or is that embracing it? I don't think they're embracing anything. I think they're taking the piss with all of it. <laughs> to tell you the truth. I don't think it was biting enough. I sometimes wonder whether they had the guts to go all the way. I mean, you brought up before Kentucky Fried Movie and that game definitely went to places which you wouldn't have thought that they could do that but they decided no we're going to go all the way with this i sometimes wonder whether bill fishman as a writer he was basically told no you can only do so much which is unusual because for someone like mike nesmith being attached to this as a producer i think he had no qualms about saying what he thought about popular culture and so it just seemed to me like they didn't quite have the guts to go all the way maybe they did and it just wasn't as funny as i thought it was but i like the idea about this overall and you mentioned before carrie you like that whole notion of the clue gallagher character a corrupt politician the guy who, who gets spanked and doesn't want the videotape getting out of there personally i could have done without that as a side story it was amusing enough but i thought there's so much that they could take the piss of with the whole music video culture that they didn't need to have that as a digression mm -hmm. uh, I, mm -hmm. I would I would like to have seen it just milk it for all that they could with that alone. Right. I was going to say, but this is an interesting thing to me. One of the things that kind of stands out, everything that they're chasing after has the recognition, but there's no talent. 
but then they're looking at swanky mode sitting in the bar and they've got the talent but no recognition right mm-hmm. finally you know with with the end of it all they want to bring the talent to the recognition this film is just stacked i love how they just go into the, the various segments of the projects that they get hired to do like for example the i cubed or and i've got just the band cube squared this group is hotter than hot they've sold more records in sweden than ABBA. That's the best. Baby doll. Here's the thing. I mean, I obviously, and we discussed this, I think, when we were talking about Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story. But to be able to parody something well, you have to get down in the mud and be exactly like that. And it's my contention that watching that cube squared video clip, these three Swedish guys who are all wearing muscle shirts and white body length suits and playing Casio keyboards and have got all big hair and singing you know, this synth song that would not have been out of place in the 80s. I was expecting them to turn into pencil sketches. <laughs> yeah, well, they probably didn't have the budget for that in this film. Yeah. But the thing is that if that song had been taken out of the movie and released on its own merits with all this paint flying about and explosions like they do in the mockery of that type of video, it would have been taken seriously in the 80s. It was only like once it got to the end of the 80s where Mike Nesmith and Bill Fishman are saying, geez, this is a bit ridiculous. Let's go over the top and show this being making and we can laugh at it. But I'm suggesting that if that video had made its way to MTV proper, no one would have been laughing at it. It would have just been another video clip maybe in the vein of aha. Yes. It would have fallen into the, the realm of the bum with free. Everyone would have been like, wow, this is so profound. You know, exactly, they're, exactly. They're, they're talking about the deconstruction of the American family. I want to come back to that whole notion of the videos because I want to talk about Bill Fishman and what he did leading up to the making of this film. But I want to talk just for a couple of minutes about the culture that the film represents. And this is sort of like talking about what you were saying a, a few minutes ago, Tim, about the zeitgeist and the films that were being made about the time that something was being big into American consciousness. So last Saturday night, I went to Acme here in Melbourne. There's this cinema club, I think, that's being run by a fellow called Lee Gambin. Hello, Lee, if you're listening. He's been running this for a few years called Cinemaniacs. And he takes films and gives them a cinema screening and someone gives a bit of a talk before the film starts. So last Saturday night, Joe and I went to see Saturday Night Fever. You know, I work on my hair a long time and and you hit it. He hits my hair. Which, at its heart, is not really a film about disco dancing or disco music, but more about what John Travolta's character does to get through his week when he's not being king of the disco. The time in the discotheque and its music, however, does reflect an aspect of the culture and the zeitgeist at the time. Tony Manero, played by John Travolta, isn't content to be a gig-goer. He'd probably find the whole New York CBGB's movement repulsive. He can go to the nightclub, dress to the 
nines with his perfect hair and be the center of attention as he shows off his dance move. He is the replacement for the working musician or as is the DJ in showing his vanity, his narcissism, his lack of consideration for others. The music and the discotheque are the tools to tell us his story. And it tells a story about a wider culture. The disco, the hospital, I guess, in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is also a microcosm of a wider society. And that got me to thinking about tape heads. Forgive me if this is something of a stretch, but even in a film like this, which I think has none of the darkness of Saturday Night Fever, its satire is trying to be of a culture, unlike films that celebrate the can-do, will-do attitude and shows the main character in adverse circumstances, the main character, we're going to show them being triumphant at the end. Tapeheads is trying to be a kick in the balls to that culture, but we've gone from films about, hey, we're going to put a band together and we're going to do something, we're going to be creative with our music, to Saturday Night Fever, which says we're not interested in bands, we're just interested in being the centre of attention through dancing to the music in a public forum. And the characters here say we're not even interested in that. We're interested in getting videos out to the general public. We're interested... Maybe it's le- the whole MTV era is less about the creation of those videos and more about just the watching of those videos. And the culture is about the watching of those videos. And Yeah, it's about a culture eating itself, basically. Right. It's consumer culture, of course. You know, a couple things come to mind now. Like, for one... Mike Nesmith, it's no coincidence that he produces. I mean, because when you look at what he was doing before this with Elephant Parts and some of the projects that he had actually worked on, video-based projects, like him being one of the first recognized video artists in North America before a little before this, you know, in the late 70s. Also, you know, everybody's so vapid in this movie. You know, everybody's just so fired up their own ass. And that's what it's supposed to be. Aside from the only two people that I don't see that are like this are Tim Robbins and, the, and his girlfriend. The two of them, to me, are the two most authentic because both of them just want to do what they want to do. They want to create to create. And they don't really want the accolades. They just want to do what they want to do because they like doing it. Whereas Cusack and then his foil, the female side of it, both of them are connivers falling in love with connivers, right? But I find that, no, the two most authentic to me, aside from swanky modes, are, like I say, um, Tim Robbins and his girlfriend. Wasn't there some line where Cusack says, Triangle of success, man. Skills, attitude, knowledge. I got the attitude, he's got the skills and the knowledge. In a way, that sort of reminds me of uh, this brilliant film from the 90s called Big Night, which had Tony Shalhoub. Yeah, and, I know that film. And, uh, uh, Stanley Tucci. Stanley Tucci. So, you know, Stanley Tucci is into the promotion and Tony Shalhoub is the brilliant chef. But even the Stanley Tucci character at the very end of the film, mm-hmm. he knows how to make a scrambled egg. He, he knows something about, a little bit about cooking. But, you know, there's another story about, uh, well, in that case, two brothers rather than two close friends who are basically trying to use promotion 
through uh, the Ian Holm character to get their business up and running. Yeah. Whereas the, the Tony Shalhoub character, all he wants to do is make food. Stanley Tucci character, he just says, no, we got to be big. we got to be big. And that's what I see these two characters of. Speaking of the promotion, there are some really funny moments in this, though. Like, I love that moment where John Cusack goes in and he's handing a card off to Mike Nesmith, you know, promotional card, you know, hands him his card and Nesmith takes it and Cusack leaves and turns out Nesmith's just the guy who fills the water bottles. <laughs> Like, I, like that's happened. Like that's that's really happened to people. Like you know it has. Or else I love the bit where you know it's like you see Ted Nugent come walking in with, with those two girls, and Cusack follows them, and Nugent throws his ass right out. The same thing with Weird Al. Surreal. It, that was really yeah. Weird Al. Like I just thought that was brilliant. You know, like it was just really you're going places, pal. I didn't know Ted Nugent was so tall. Yeah, I love the fact that probably the sleaziest guy in the film is someone who was so beloved to a generation of oh, yeah. TV watchers within Don Cornelius. Yeah. Now, What's the budget like? Budget? Well, I'm going to let you do this one on spec. What is spec? It means you do this one for free. It's the way everybody starts out. Oh, spec. Yeah, right, right. Spec. I know about spec. Let's get into trouble, baby. The reason I knew about Don Cornelius was not obviously through the 70s, not living in America. And Soul Train didn't make its way here. But during the early 2000s, when bootleg DVD trading was a thing, someone sent me a bunch of DVDs of Soul Train. And I just got transfixed watching these musicians mime. The attraction was watching the dancers. The dancers were so good. And Don Cornelius is there. You know, he's introducing these and he's very laid back and he's introducing the singers and he's encouraging the dancers and he just seems like this really, really lovely guy who loved the music. I was listening to a podcast recently where someone was talking about Don Cornelius and how he put this show together in the first place and how it ran such a long time. And here he is. He's the low-rent music video producer. Yeah. Uh, and he's basically conning... Yeah, I like that. That was funny. He's, he's conning John Cusack's character, who's the guy who basically thinks that, you know, he's got the pencil-thin mustache and he thinks he's going to use his smoothness and he's going to be able to con everyone else. And Don Cornelius has it all over him. Kid, you going to school me? You are in school. Class is in session. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to do this video on spec. Spec, spec, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, I know what spec is. And that was probably one of the few bits in the film that gave me a big belly laugh. That's the thing about this film, because probably because it's loaded with so many cameos, I think that you probably find it funnier when you know who the people are. And I've got to confess, when I went through the cast list later on, I mean, there were a few people who I knew, but there's a lot of people who I didn't know and will come later on to the most meta moment of the film I didn't recognize at the very end of the film. We'll come back to that. Oh, yeah, yeah. But there was funny, like, Kota Mundi from uh, Kate Creole. He's in the limo with them talking about Menudo and then Bob Forrest, Thelonious Monsters in there, and then uh, Xander Schloss from the Circle Jerks and all the lords of the new church with Steph Bader is playing the blender okay. children. That was hilarious. That was, I love that bit where he's got the crane and you see him just get closer and closer. They're like, ah! 
<laughs> but that comes sort of to what I was talking about before. I mean, I'm watching that video clip and, and I looked it up to see, oh, who are these guys? Ah, oh, Lords of the New Church. Hey, Eric Peterson, if you're listening. And I went to watch a few Lords of the New Church videos. They're not really, I mean, musically, it's very different to the Blended Children, yeah. but video-wise, it's not terribly different to no, the sort not- of thing that they think, which makes me wonder whether they sort of thought, we're tired of making these videos. Yeah, we're going to do this because it's taken a piss out of what we've done or whether they thought no this is something that's genuinely different to what we've done as lords of the new church no i think they were just having fun but i mean Ooh, I, and I love i love yeah. how they screwed the video up and then they own then they wind up taking footage from the funeral <laughs> and they you know they just throwing it in there as the you know as the music video that i was really yeah it's funny like i'm always torn when filmmakers use a lot of stunt casting and they have 12 million cameos where you're just waiting for the next one to show up and you're really scrutinizing people and going, wait a minute, who's, do I know him? Do I know her? Who are they? It's fun, but it's also distracting from the main idea of the film and stuff like that. So, I mean, I feel like you have to sort of limit the amount of stunt casting you do, but that and... um, the main thing that got me was just the mood of the film, the zaniness I can't take too much zany. <laughs> I'm glad you went on our Hell's a Poppin' episode then. Yeah, you would have well, hated that. I mean, I, things like, like I love the Marx Brothers, right? But that's different to me because it's also really witty. They're funny. They're making jokes. They're funny. They're, they're much funnier. And it just, ah, just didn't land, you know? I mean, there were enough interesting parts of it to make it watchable. But I was just like, okay, you know? <laughs> Something happened. Yeah. Oh, God. Ah, ah, we got to run. Ah, ah. All the time, I'm just like, okay, enough already. I think where I would say overall that I liked this film over the fact that I thought a lot of it didn't land was probably because of the spirit that it was made in. And sometimes that is enough for me. But I mean, I had very few belly laughs. But overall, I thought that, you know, the spirit that this was made in was enough to score the points with me. I got to say, I think you're ascribing a lot of depth to this movie that perhaps isn't really there. (laughs) You know what? Bernie used to accuse me of that all the time, but I thought, well, if I don't do that, then this is going to be like a 10-minute episode. Determination to rise above a slave. The Mayo men use fire horses to spray the monkeys. I wanted to bring up for a couple of minutes about Bill Fishman, who was the uh, director of the film, because I'm not sure if this was the first case, but maybe it's an early case of a music video director graduating, if you want to call it that, to making a movie. And obviously he's thinking, well, I'm going to make a film about something that I know. Uh, I mean, like nowadays, I think it's a lot more common. And the big examples are, I guess, Spike Jones and Michelle Gondry. Well, one thing I wanted to add about Fishman as well, and I don't know if you were aware of this, he did another really, really good music film that I happened to catch on Tubi, and it's called My Dinner with Jimmy. It's actually about the Turtles' first tour of Europe. 
Oh, wow. And how they wind up going over there and becoming really dismayed. And it winds up with a 25-minute uh, scene of them sitting down having dinner with Jimi Hendrix. Oh, now i got to see that. You reckon that's on Tubi? Yep, it is. Okay. But it's it's really good. And uh, Howard Kalen's actually involved in it. I'm trying to think, was was Howard on um, Gilbert Gottfried's podcast? Yep. Yeah, I thought so, because I remember there was some Turtles Association on uh, on the Amazing Colossal podcast, but I couldn't quite remember for sure. I found it interesting, like, whilst trying to look up what else Bill Fishman had done in music videos, I found a website, imvdb.com, which is dedicated to music videos and music directors, although I think it's very Northern Hemisphere-centric, no mention of Chris Levine from Australia, who directed 20th Century Oz or... Oz, a rock and roll road movie, who was like a pioneer in Australian music videos, but never mind, they, they can always improve. Uh, but Bill's been directing music videos since the early 80s. The earliest listed at that site was back in 1983 with a song called Jet Fighter by the Three O'Clock. And the last thing that he did listed there was last year with the Backstreet Boys doing a cover of Last Christmas by Wham. I went onto YouTube and someone had very conveniently put together... Uh, I don't know, about 15 or 20 music videos that Bill Fishman had done as a playlist. So I watched about three or four. And there's one of Hank Williams Jr. doing a song called Young Country. And the common thing with a few of these videos is it's always interrupted with dialogue. So you've got these old farts sitting around arguing over what constitutes country music and that ain't country and that ain't country with a whole bunch of lookalike musicians in the clip arguing otherwise. There was a Ramones film clip for the great song Something to Believe In and that film took the piss out of the uh, USA for Africa visually. Right. That had a cast of thousands. So, you know, once again, it seems like Bill says, hey, are you available? Are you available? But that was quite funny. And then there was a film clip by Suicidal Tendencies. Trip to the brain, yeah, trip to the brain. Lead singer Mike Muir is escaping a sadistic psychiatrist, swinging a brain in front of him. And John Cusack, acting as a sadistic army sergeant who calls him a maggot, he makes an appearance in that film clip. And one of my favorite bands, Wilco, there you go. Once again, Bill Fishman had gone and directed their song Out of Sight, Out of Mind from their early album Being There. And that one was sort of different to the other videos in that it wasn't trying to tell a story. It was just the four of them getting up in a plane and going skydiving. And I think one of them's on a on a skateboard while skydiving and they just land in a field and that's it. And they're all playing their instruments while they're diving through the air. So it just led me sort of thinking when you watch some films with directors that we consider auteurs, you know, whatever, they have a style about them. You can identify a Stanley Kubrick film. You can identify a Martin Scorsese film. But I'm just sort of wondering, forgetting Bill Fishman for a second, were there any music video directors that you know of that had a style or did they make things to use the other definition of the expression used in the film? Did they make things just to spec? Did Bill Fishman have a style? Because like watching those first few videos that I mentioned there, it seemed like there are a ton of videos that were made probably by other directors that look very much in that style. Or did Bill Fishman, to the best of your knowledge, did he make these videos in his particular way and other people copied off him? I'm not sure because I know like there there was a lot of guys who did definitive had definitive styles. Ridley Scott did video to start. 
there was others. Oh wow! Yeah, there was others that had a definitive style, like in in certain video, and and people were pulled for having their specific styles. But for Fishman, I don't know. If you really think about it, though, like Carrie, do you remember the Twisted Sister videos? Oh yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. How they were goofy. How it was just like you're not listening to this stuff in my house. Right. The guy yeah. from Animal Animal House. That. Right. 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 You know, we're less weak. Yeah. 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 That kind of. There was always those goofy stories in a lot of '80s videos. Huey Lewis and the News had some funny ones. Of course, Robert Palmer always had those girls dancing in the background, yep, right? Yep, yeah. And um, even Cindy Lauper, when girls just want to have fun with Cindy Lauper, Lou Albano. Yeah. yeah, he he had Lou Albano, and and she had Lou Albano, and then Van Halen had some. Oh, uh, yeah. good, hot for teacher. Hot for teacher was funny. <laughs> now uh, that's funny because I mean, like you look, you know, I mean, obviously, how long ago that was, you know, thirty some odd years ago. But imagine that video coming out today. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nah, nah, don't think so. <laughs> As you were saying before, Tim, it's a zeitgeist. It's right. a culture that was acceptable. And now we're seeing videos on YouTube. I mean, maybe it's more the indie artists who are doing this, where it's often a one shot or they're just sitting in a room. But you see, that's the whole thing that gets me about tape heads. To me, it's a parody of like current day YouTube. When video first came out as an art form and it was televised, it's just like, you know, you had people that were creating things going, well, is this art? Well, it doesn't matter, man. People are fucking watching it. You know, if they're watching it, it's art. And that's the same thing with YouTube now. Like, I mean, like how I said earlier about, uh, you know, eight seconds me when I heard the term content creator. And it's just like, well, if somebody's watching it, then I guess it's valid, it's considered art. To me, it, it's just kind of a piss take on that. Something opens up, there's a moment and everyone's just like, well, we're, we're diving in. We're, we don't exactly, we're not exactly sure what it is, but we think it'll pay off. It kind of takes me back to one of my favorite lines ever that I think is hilarious, but it is also says so much is in the movie Barton Fink, where he winds up going to uh, Hollywood for the first time. And then he meets this uh, the film head, Michael Leonard. And Mike, Michael Leonard says, now, the important thing is we all wanted to have that Barton Fink feeling. You know, write me something with that Barton Fink feeling. He's never had anything produced. But it's just that thing about, you know, like, give me that thing you do. What do I do? <laughs> I was a little fish swimming in a great big pond. Oh, oh. You had some real good faith, huh? Give me some. I was swimming on the bottom, trying to go up free. Searching for an answer to a lonely dream. The two characters in the film, played by John Cusack and Tim Robbins, they're trying to climb up the corporate tree, as it were, or trying to get big in the music video world, but they're true to their love of the swanky modes, which are played by Junior Walker and Sam Moore. And I can't help but feel that Bill Fishman or Mike Nesmith or maybe even Cusack and Robbins themselves you know, saw that Junior Walker and Sam Moore had long been forgotten, although maybe, I guess, you know, maybe not because the Blues Brothers would have brought that whole soul revival back to people's attention and that terrible film, Soul Man, was probably out about the same time. But maybe Sam and Dave, or certainly Junior Walker, who I think was more of a session musician than an artist known in his own right, the only thing I can 
think I remember of his is uh, Shotgun, which might have been like an early Motown hit. But Sam and Dave were kings of soul in the 60s. And then, you know, they split up and got back together. But Sam and Dave hated each other's guts. And I think that the original Dave Prater found a different Sam to work with through the 80s. But the swanky modes is probably the creators of this film or the writers of this film, their opportunity. Hey, we can get these guys to play a contemporary Sam and Dave. We can show them respect. So it seems in a way that the film is sort of paralleling what went on behind the scenes. A dream project. Can't say for sure. It's funny what you were mentioning before, Tim, you know, you get these Johnny comes lately who are making it big in the video world and the MTV world with their one-off hit and these guys are swanky modes they're forced to play these little dives and i just thought that was a funny scene of fishbone playing in a little pub and right and the swanky modes are in there and thinking you know and who would want this gig anyway when the whole place is full of nothing but losers and white trash I just sort of see that maybe in a parallel to what happened seven or eight years before. Right. That with Belushi and Aykroyd, we're probably seeing their mission. Their mission from God, as it were, was to revive the careers of the Stax greats and maybe even going further back by having uh, Cab Calloway in there and you know bringing Ray Charles. And that was their mission. And maybe to a smaller extent, that's what happens with uh, bringing Sam and Dave. Well, not Sam and Dave. The scene in the bar when the, the guys first go in and they make the proposal, Sam Jr., and they're talking to them. And it, it, it makes me laugh because it almost reminds me of, you know, the old Warner Brothers cartoon where they had the little dog and then the bulldog and the little dog's like... Yeah, absolutely. Like, What's Spike? What have you done Spike? where the two guys are just sitting there at the bar just like you know whatever 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 you know it's just like what do these white boys want you know we're gonna bring you back to the top tomorrow night of course it's always gonna happen in 24 hours right actually so one bit that did make me laugh but i think they probably pinched that bit from the steve martin film the man with two brains was uh, they want to get a couple of beers for the swanky modes. Says, oh, oh yeah, the brothers against drink driving have been on my ass. Now recite the alphabet backwards, skipping all the vowels, and give me the sign language for each letter as you pass by. Z Y X W V T S R Q P N M L K J H G F D C B. And it sort of reminds me of that that moment in uh, The Man With Two Brains where he says, okay, I want you to hop on your hands, juggle yeah, these yeah. three balls yeah. on, on your hands while singing the Urgenschlagen Schlugen song. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Damn your drunk tests are hard. <laughs> Junior Walker and Sam Moore go from being probably as genuinely bemused their characters as they would be like in real life thinking what are we doing in this film hey but at the end when they give that performance at the uh, at the concert right. they absolutely own it and they, i think it's probably not by coincidence that the song they're singing is called an ordinary man would have given up by now You know, that band that's playing with them, they're no slouches either, because I was looking at the lineup of the band. Actually, Jim Keltner's in there. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man, he was a king. Yeah. You got these guys who were the king of 60s R&B reviews performing in an 80s context. And I didn't pick up that that was Jim Keltner, but there you go, another cameo. But I think, like, this might be stretching it a, a little bit, too. I'm sorry uh, we're picking our threads here, Carrie. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, but here's a here's the thing that I find interesting, though, is that with all the video performances that they're catching, like the baby doll and then the blender children, and then finally at the end, it's like being there. That's the purest you're going to get. You know, I mean, it's just like everyone wants magic to happen. Get it on video, you know, and they try to create this environment that never seems to come together. Like I said, with the, the Euro trash and then with the, the glam guys, they, they try to create this artificial environment that never really seems to come together. But then when you get the two standards up there, two, you know, soulful dudes in suits, man, just give it it. That's where it's just like there's no smoke machines, there's no filters, there's no nothing. It's just them. It's just the performance, right? The suits. Yep. And I think that's, that's I thought the suits are awesome. Oh yeah, me too. Shiny blue double breasted. Right. But that's but to me that it's trying to say something there. That it's like you can have your puffy hair and you can have all your color filters and your pencil sketches and your video, take on me, whatever you want to do. But in the end, it's the performance. That's where the shit or shine comes through. You're 100% on the money there. I hadn't even thought of that. But that, see, Carrie, that's why we do analysis of, <laughs> of films that don't warrant no, them. Did I say we shouldn't do analysis of films? No, <laughs> never. I just said that it, this movie did not hit my sweet spots. Just didn't didn't do it. But, right. I mean, there still were aspects that I liked. And I would never, ever say not to review a movie. Are you kidding me? Oh. I, I, I'm and someone I, who, one of my favorite movies is The Brain That Wouldn't Die. I mean, I me love too. those kind of movies. Oh, yeah. No, no, I don't think that at all. And, yeah, you know, I like a lot of the music in this. It's just, yeah. I don't know. I And I couldn't figure out, like, what John Cusack was going for. He was too sort of over the top. I'll be honest with you. I don't think that he did a great job in this film. I'm beginning to sort of think less and less of him as an actor. Uh. He wasn't sleazy enough. I mean, he had the pencil-thin mustache. And, you know, he keeps coming up with these ideas, which, you know, uh, he's just tailing on his best friend's talent. But I don't really think he worked. I would have liked to have seen someone a bit sleazier and maybe it would have been funny. Well, you but... know who would have really been a good uh, substitution for Cusack, I think? Who's that? Harvey Weinstein. Uh, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> well, you're saying you're saying you want the sleaze, right? So I mean, you know, a sleazy actor, Tim, a sleazy actor. Right? Yeah, you're right. He wasn't acting. You're, yeah, you're right. All right. Any final thoughts? I will always watch a film that has Bobcat Goldthwait in it. Just saying. <laughs> yeah, I, I gotta say, I did like that. I was like, wait a minute, look at him. That's that's him. Yeah. I'm surprised, Tim, that to this point you haven't mentioned the final cameo. Go for it. Oh yeah. Before we get into this, it's funny because the Dead Kennedys actually came out with a song called MTV Get Off the Air. Hi, I'm your video DJ. I always talk like I'm way down on planes. I wear a sock baseball jacket everywhere I go. My job is to help destroy what's left of your imagination like eating you. And, you know, just about the whole absurdity of it all. 
And at the very, not spoiler alert, the very end of this film, the guys basically get, they pull off their coup, but then they're going to get hauled off for basically televising nudity worldwide. And one of the fellows that goes to haul them off, one of the FBI agents, is none other than one Mr. Jello Biafra, lead singer of the Dead Kennedys. And it's funny how his line in the film is, you know, Remember what we did to Jello Biafra? <laughs> <laughs> I just thought that was brilliant. That was really brilliant. Now, truth be told, the first time I saw this film when it came out on video, I didn't think that much about it. There was parts I liked because I liked basically the bands that were in it, like Fishbone and Lords of the New Church. But the, the, again, I, it was something like, I'm like, uh, I'm going to leave this alone. I'll come back to this in a couple of years. So I came back to it in a couple of years, and there was other things I found that were funnier. And it was more like the other actors, not so much the music. And then I said, I still going to leave it alone come back to it a couple of years later and then there was other things that i found that, so every time i come back to this film i'm just finding that there's other things at another level or something else that just kind of make me smile about it i'm not saying this is birth of a nation you know or this is not gone with the wind this could be the citizen kane of uh music video movies but uh you know well it had martha quinn yeah, it's not the greatest film, but it's, you know, but I, I like this. I don't know, man. Like, to me, this was like a grilled cheese. You know? I, I tend to agree for all the fact that I wasn't laughing up and down the whole way through. As I said earlier on in the show, I think that it's just the mood that it set. I found it likable. Yeah. Um, if, and, and sometimes that's enough. My biggest negative was the pacing of it, too. And it was just... All over the place. It was all over the place. You know, there would be like zany madcap part and then it would just lay there like a locks, you know, and you'd be like, okay, is something going to happen? One thing that I'll give it points for, Kerry, and I wonder if you'd agree with this, is that it never got serious towards the end. It wasn't like that sort of film where everyone has to learn something, which I think tended to be an 80s trope. In a lot of comedy films, it wasn't necessarily really over the top funny, but it never sagged into, well, here's a lesson. Yeah, no, it didn't. No, there was a lesson, though. I mean, if you if you want to run for president, don't ever get yourself videotaped wearing a ballerina outfit while you're getting spanked. And the other lesson is pay your parking ticket. Right. <laughs> that was a genuine. Where did that come from? That was pretty clever. i got to give him that. So I think we've taken that as far as we can go. It's my pick for next month, which is May of 2023, episode 105. And I'm going to go for a film. I'm wondering if either of you have seen it. I think that Bernie had recommended this film to me years ago. And when I reminded him of it, he said, I don't even remember seeing that. How could I recommend that to you? But I'm sure it was him. It's a film from 2010 made in Sweden called The Sound of Noise. Ah. I've not seen this, but I've been dying to see it for years. And when I was sort of thinking, oh, it's my turn. What am I going to do? Ah, right. Here's my excuse. This is a film about art, performance, crime. It just looks fascinating. So that's what we're going to do. Now, if you want to be able to watch The Sound of Noise, I'm not sure if it's available on any of the regular streaming services. I have found it available on YouTube for free, but you have to be logged into America on your VPN. 
So I'm not sure whether that's the same case for Canada or whatever, but if you're in Australia and you want to follow along with the sound of noise, then um, use your VPN or see if there's some other way that you can watch this film to play along. But I've been dying to watch this film for years, so I'm going to force it on YouTube for us to uh, watch for the show next month. Meanwhile, if you want to get in contact with us, you can join the Facebook group, facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here podcast. Uh, we're part of the Pantheon group of podcasts, so go to pantheonpodcasts.com to check out any of the other wonderful podcasts that we're playing in the same sandpit as. Uh, you want to send us an email, write to us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com. And I think that's about it. With that, I'll say uh, farewell, and uh, we'll see you all next month for uh, episode 105 of See Here. All the best. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.